listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Have a seat. As you are sitting down, uh, let me introduce myself real quick. My name is Clint. For those of you who we haven't met, uh, or maybe I haven't met, maybe you're uh, new here, you came last week. This is your first week, and so you think that this guy preaches every week, and maybe you're not so sure about this church. Well, if you don't like it, hang on. Bill will be back next week, okay? Um, If you have your Bible, turn with me, Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, and I did not say Exodus 20, although we have spent the last four weeks in Exodus 20 as we walk through the 10 commandments. We are moving on today, and all God's people said amen. This morning, we are gonna cover three chapters, 21, 22, and 23, three chapters of Old Testament law. Yep, and because nothing, nothing says Happy Father's Day more than that, right? Then God's saying, I told you so, all right, basically, is what's happening, because I said so. Um, this is one of those places where Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, you, you, you feel, man, I feel disconnected from God. I wanna hear from him, and so you're gonna read your Bible, and your go-to is something in the New Testament, right, a gospel or an epistle. I'm gonna change it up today. I'm gonna flip to the Old Testament. You turn to Exodus 23, verse nine, where it says that you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, and you think, that's exactly what I needed to hear today. Thank you, God. Praise your name, right? And we can joke about it, but passages like that, they actually raise a lot of questions for us. Primarily, what do we do with those? What do we do with these obscure laws in the Bible that are so difficult for us to figure out how, how could they possibly apply to our lives? And the thing is, these laws, they're not just obscure. A lot of them are absolutely offensive, And we'll see this in a a minute, but there are laws in these three chapters about slavery, about virgins, about things that make no sense to us in our culture, in our context, they're even offensive to us. And what we need to understand is that the context of what's happening here and why God is giving his people the law. So in the book of Exodus, up to this point, what we've seen is that God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt, he brings them through the Red Sea, and he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. Right? And I know that you're in chapter 21, but in, in, in chapter 19, before God gives his people the law and the 10 commandments, he says this, it'll be on the screen. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God says to Egypt, uh, or to Israel rather, I've brought you out of Egypt for a reason. He says, I want you to be my treasured possession. I want you to be a kingdom of priests, he said, right? So the word priest, it means that this person would be uh, a representative for God to the people around them. And God says, this is who I want you to be. I want you to be my treasured possession, meaning I brought you out of Egypt that you might live in relationship with me. I want you to be holy. That is, you'd be set apart. Your life should look different. You will live a holy life, a distinct life from the people around you, and I want you to be a kingdom of priests, which means that as we live in relationship with God and we live these different lives distinct from the world around us, the people will see that. We become representatives of God. We become a kingdom of priests. People see our different lives, and it it reveals to them that God really does know how life works best, right? And this is why God gives his people the law, to show them how their lives were supposed to be different, And what we cannot forget in this is that their obedience to God's law was not the way that they would earn God's love, 
right? Their obedience to the law was not the way they would earn a relationship with God. Verse four, we just read it, said, you yourself have seen what, who did? I did. God says, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. You saw how I have brought you to myself. That's past tense. That means it's already done, which means the relationship with God already exists because of what God does and not what they need to do for themselves. The point there is not, this is how you become my people, but rather, you're already my people. And so this is how you live like that is true about you. This is how you live in light of the reality that God has brought you to himself. Your life should look different. This is the context that God gives his people, the Ten Commandments, and it's the same context that he gives the rest of the law, right? This is a picture from the creator God of how life works best. So if you were to read through these, these three chapters this afternoon, I know you all will, um, what you will see is a lot of if, then, and when. If, then, and when, right? So if this happens, then here's what you need to do. But when this happens, here's how you should respond. If then and when, right? Which means that these laws are not adding to the 10 commandments, but they are an interpretation of what the 10 commandments should look like in their daily lives. Look at Exodus 21 verse one. God says this, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So again, this is God speaking to Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai. He's already delivered the 10 commandments. Those have already been given to the people. Moses goes back up and God says this, these are the rules that you should give to them. And the question we need to answer is who are they? Who is the them that God is saying these are the rules for them? It's not us, it's Israel. The them is the people that God has just rescued out of slavery in Egypt and God tells Moses these are the rules for those people. This is how their lives should look different in their context, right? So what can we learn from this? What can we learn? How should our lives, these rules that God gives this group of people, how should they inform the way that we live today? Maybe, maybe this will help. So every single one of us in this room, we, we represent a home or a family, right? And you might be single and maybe you live alone or maybe you have roommates or your home is your spouse or your kids if you have them or you have whoever living with you, right? Every single one of us in this room, we represent a family and we all have a list of rules that govern the way that we live our lives. Now, they're probably not you know, written on stone tablets. And if they are, I wanna see those, okay? And I want you to make me a set, okay? But they're not written down at all, most likely, but we do have them. And the rules that govern our family and our lives and our homes, um, they're not arbitrary, right? They're, they're not just because. They, they reflect the things that we love. They reflect the things that we care about. So here's an example. In our house, one of the rules is that when you come in, you take your shoes off. Anybody else? No one. Okay, a couple people. All right, be proud. And everyone else is looking at you like you guys are all, we're all germaphobes, okay? But be proud in the fact that that's one of the rules of our house. Here, here's the thing. Um, that's not because we don't like shoes, okay? That's because the bottom of your shoes are gross. That's why, right? So you go, you live your whole day with your shoes on. You go to work, you go to the bathroom, you go to the grocery store, you go to Walmart, which might be the most disgusting place on the planet. And then you go to the bathroom in Walmart and then you bring all that funk back up in your house. All right, so a rule in our house is we take our shoes off because, not because we don't like shoes, but because the bottom of your shoes is gross. And just to be fair, this rule did not originate with me, okay? I'm not gonna say the person that it originated with because she's not in the room. I said it earlier, but it didn't originate with me, all right? And it, and it didn't always, hasn't always been a rule in our family. It became a rule when my son Zeke was born. 
and he starts crawling around on the floor just randomly licking everything he passed. <laughs> and because I don't let him lick the floor in the Walmart bathroom, when you come to my house, which you're welcome, you take your shoes off, all right? That's a rule in our house. Here's another one. The rules reflect the things that we love, and I love my kids. Um, another rule in my house is I don't like the color orange. We don't like the color orange. Particularly when it's next to the color blue. And, and here's the thing, it's not because I don't like orange, it's a fine color, it's not because I don't like blue, it's a fine color. It's because it reflects the things I love and I love red and black, okay? <laughs> rules, wow, it's an easy crowd today. Rules, they reflect the things that we love. And so at this point in Israel's history, there were only, they were only three months having been delivered out of Egypt as slaves. So you know what they knew a lot about? Pharaoh's rules. They knew a lot about Pharaoh, they knew a lot about what Pharaoh loved, and they did not know very much about who their God was and the things that he loved. And so God has given them these rules, these laws to teach his people, this is who I am. And these are the things that I love, right? So essentially God is saying to them, I didn't bring you out of Egypt to just recreate Egypt in the wilderness. I brought you here, put you on a mission that you might live distinctly different than the world around you. So God has given him or his people a mission that is specific to their context, but the mission still exists for you and I today, right? The, the, the context, the interpretation of God's commands, they might change for us because our context is different, but our God is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And so church, being a Christian, it means that God has given you a mission, you. If you would say, I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm a follower of Christ, God has given you a mission. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about it like this. He says, we are uh, ministers of reconciliation. That each one of us have been given the message of reconciliation that we get to in our life point people to the reality that you can be reconciled, brought near to a holy God despite the fact that that is not what you deserve through the personal work of Jesus. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says we are ambassadors for Christ, which means that we are his representatives in every space of our life, at home, in our neighborhoods, on our streets, down at the park, at work, when you're at the grocery store, wherever, at, on your hobbies, on the golf course, anywhere you might be, our lives tell a story about the people or about who our God is and what he's done. It reminds us who our God is and what he's done and it points people as we live different lives to the reality that our God is good and he knows how life works best. God has given us a mission. And so he gives them these laws to govern their daily lives and to say, hey, for you, this is how your life should look different in your context. And again, these laws are not arbitrary. They reveal what God loves. They reveal to us the things that God likes, right? And so as image bearers of God, we should love the things that he loves. That's the point. And remember, several times in this series, we've, we've referenced Matthew 22, where Jesus says that all of the law can be summed up in two ways. What is it? You love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That all of the law, and the law he's talking about is Exodus 20 to 23, all of these laws can be summed up in these two categories. You love God and you love your neighbor. And so what I wanna do with the rest of our time is look at a few of these laws, we're not gonna read them all, Look at a few of these and think about how should it inform our love for God, essentially our worship, and how should it inform the way that we love people, love for people. And so I wanna start with love for people. Let's look at verse one, chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. 
If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave says, I love my master, love my wife and my kids, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So you see what I meant about some of these laws not just being obscure, but being offensive, right? So when we read this, like what do we do with the fact that the Bible, there are laws in the scriptures about slavery? Because this is a word that is very, that might be, when I read verse two, when you buy a Hebrew slave, you might not have heard anything else because you get stuck there. It's an easy word for us to get stuck on because what comes to mind when we hear the word slaves is the horrific injustice of this ethnically based involuntary lifelong servitude. That's what comes to our mind when we hear the word slaves. But like we said earlier, we have to remember that our culture and our context is not the same as Exodus 21. The Bible actually condemns that system of slavery. In verse 16, it says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So it condemns that system of slavery, even punishable by death. So it's clear, something different is going on here. What is it? Well, this word that's translated slave here, another translation would be laborer or servant, right? And the type of slavery that was common in this culture was like what we would call indentured service, right? That's basically what's going on here. And at this point in history, there weren't big corporations, not as many employers as there are today, right? So for us, like these people wouldn't be able to make a living by influencing people online, you know, is that sounds condescending, it is, right? You, you post videos online that have no value to civilization and yet make six figures, right? That, that option of employment wasn't available to them. The only options they had was you either work for yourself, your skills, your piece of land, whatever, or you work for a wealthier person, right? And you use your skills on their piece of land, okay? So, it, and, and there were no bankruptcy laws either. So if you were gonna avoid your debts became too great for you to pay and you wanted to avoid homelessness and starvation and even death, what you would do is you would sell yourself, maybe even your family, to a wealthier family in exchange for food and protection and you know, uh, a home, a place to live. And so uh, I get it. When I say sell yourself, right, I understand how uncomfortable that feels. But what this doesn't mean is that you are, you are no longer your own person. This isn't talking about stripping someone of their rights or removing their personhood. What it's talking about is you would sell the rights to your labor, right? And, and that makes more sense to us in our culture, right? My labor, the right, the, you guys, this church pretty much owns the right to my labor. If I were preaching, working, spending all my time with a different group of people, a different church, like I probably would stop getting a paycheck eventually. We understand this idea of employment and, and labor and, and who owns the rights to our labor, right, in a sense. We wouldn't use that word, but that's what it's talking about. So we could spend a whole lot of time here, but for the sake of what's going on today, I want you to see this, how these laws would have been a blessing 
to the people that they applied to. Because a slave in this culture would hear this from God and they would think, this is only temporary. This is only temporary, six years and I go free. And it's this model of, of the Sabbath structure that we see and God creates the, the earth in six days and for a day he rests. And, he, and God says, a slave, six years, they work for you, but then they go free for nothing. They're, they're, they're their own person. This is a way for them to get back on their feet. And every other slave and every other culture would say, lifelong, you belong to me. And God says, no, 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 that's not the way it goes, right? They would hear this and think, I'm not gonna lose my family because of my circumstances. That I have a say, that it's not up to you what happens to me and my wife and my kids. If I wanna stay, I can stay, right? This is what they would hear. And in verse seven, when it says that if a man sells his daughter as a slave, we hear this and we think, what kind of man would do that? Well, what's in view here is a man that's so poor that he can't provide for his family. And so what he would do is he would arrange a marriage between one of his daughters and a wealthier family, and it would allow her to basically have a better life. Right, and we, we don't function that way practically, but we understand wanting the best for our kids, do we not? And so this is what is going on here. And God says, if and when that happens, this arranged marriage happens, the, the, the father of the groom or the groom himself, if they don't like the girl, they can't just kick her out and sell her to some foreign nation where she's gonna be abused and oppressed. He says, no, you've committed her and it is your responsibility to care for and provide for her or you send her back to her dad where she can be cared for and provided for. You see, these laws would have been a refuge for those they applied to because it meant for them that God sees them. It meant that God valued them despite their status and their circumstance, right? And God puts this first in these laws because Israel had just come out of a situation where they were at the bottom of the socioeconomic status in Israel. They were seen as nothing, seen as slaves. And God says, hey, listen, I want you to be different and my people don't act like this. We see people beyond their status, beyond their circumstances, and so should you, right? This is the first thing that should inform our love for our people. This means that the value of a person is unrelated to what they do or what they have. It also means that the value of a person is unrelated to what they can do for you or what they have to give you. Look at chapter 22, verse 21. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Again, he's saying you should understand this because this is what you come out of. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will burn. I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows, your children fatherless. Sounds like God is serious. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with you who's poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take even your neighbor's cloak and pledge as like a down payment, then you should return it to him that night before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering and it's his cloak for his body. For in what else should he sleep? For if he cries to me, I will hear. He says, for I am compassionate. This is the second thing that God says our love for people should be marked by. It's compassion, this word compassion. And I want you to see there, there's a pattern of the people that God mentions, right? Widows and orphans and the, the sojourner, which is a refugee essentially, someone who's in a, in a foreign land and they don't have the normal support they would have from being in their hometown, right? And these people were particularly vulnerable because a widow had no husband to protect her. An orphan had no father to help him. A refugee had no family to take them in. And what God is saying to his people is, I want you to be different. 
You know what this was like. You were a sojourner in the land of Egypt. I want you to see people above their circumstances and I want you to be compassionate to them, particularly those in difficult circumstances, which means that we should move toward the broken and the hurting, not away from them. And and it's easier said than done because when people are broken and hurting, it's easy to see that and just kind of turn it back to it and pretend like we didn't. Right, but Jesus says we move toward the broken and the hurting and not away uh, to the degree that we would become like family to the refugee, that we would become like parents to the orphan and that we would become like family to the widow. God says we are to be compassionate toward all people, but particularly to those who are on the fringes of society, those who are most marginalized and most vulnerable. Right? I want you to be compassionate. So this means that we should move toward broken people, right? And, and what does it mean that our love would be compassionate? Well, a definition is to feel or show empathy and consideration for others. I'm not saying that you don't know the definition of the word of compassionate. I just want you to hear that God says that our love for the people around us should be marked by this reality, that we don't just see their brokenness, but we feel empathy and we show it, right? We show this compassion and consideration to others. But there's another way to think about this word compassionate here. It's the word gracious. So other places in the ESV actually translate this exact same word gracious. We read it earlier in Psalm 145. It's also in Psalm 103 verse eight where it says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Same word, compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And this is the word that God uses to describe his love for his people in Exodus 22. He says, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, right? And this is the way that we should love the people around us as well. What does gracious mean? It means it's undeserved. It means it is a gift that our love would be given to people, not just those who deserve it from us. That our love would be a gift to people given without consideration of how they can repay the favor or return that gift, right? God says, I want my people to be different. I want your love to be gracious. Let me show you one more. Exodus 21, we're gonna start in verse 18. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with a fist and the man does not die, which would be a heck of a punch if he did, if he doesn't die but he takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, He who struck him shall be clear, only he should pay for the loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. Uh, Let's look at chapter 22, verse one. If a man steals an ox or if he steals a sheep and he kills it or he sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And then chapter 23, verse one, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. It's really exciting stuff, I know, right? Um, And what I want you to see in this is that God, he's anticipating a lot of brokenness in his people. He's anticipating a lot of things going sideways, right? So he's rescued his people from Egypt and he gives them this picture of how life works best and he puts them on this mission. But God knows there's not just a brokenness outside of his people, there's also a brokenness inside of them. And so he gives them this laws that they might respond justly to the presence of sin in their own lives. Here's how you respond when someone commits a crime. This is the, the third thing that our love should be marked by. It's justice, justice. 
And the point is, like the other two, God wants his people to be different. He wants them to learn to love the things that he loves. And if you did spend this afternoon reading through these three chapters, what would bubble to the surface very quickly is that God loves justice. God loves justice, right? Uh, And there are two categories of these laws about justice here in Exodus. You get punishment and restitution. So punishment is the consequence for a crime, a consequence for a sin, and restitution is an attempt to make a person whole or make them better than they were before the crime was committed. And God gives his people laws about both of these because he wants them to cultivate a society that's just, that's built on justice. And we read one of these examples in verse 18, right? God says if you fight and you punch a guy and he doesn't die, then you don't owe him anything except what? You pay for the time that he's lost. That's all that's required. That's the punishment that fits that crime. Meaning that if he died, something else would be required of you. But the point here is the punishment needs to be fitting for the crime. So there are laws that governed how people should be punished, and there were laws that governed, kept people from being punished too much, right? Because in a lot of cultures, depending on who the guy is who you punch, the consequence could be far more severe, right? And God says there's no justice in that either. Again, God sees people beyond their status and their circumstance, so the punishment fits the crime and not the person who committed it or whom it was committed against. The punishment commits the fits the crime. This is what chapter 23 was talking about when we read, don't fall in with the many to do evil and don't right, side with the many to pervert justice. He's saying it doesn't matter what the popular opinion is or the mob mentality is or what you feel like you need to say because what people are gonna think about you. None of that matters. What he says is my people are different and they should do what is right. They should care about justice. Right? And it's not just punishment, it's also restitution. Chapter 22, verse one, he said that if you, if you steal an ox and it dies or you sell it, then you're gonna, re, you're gonna replace that ox, but, how, but five more. And for some reason, sheep aren't worth as much. If you, if you steal a sheep, you only gotta bring four sheep back, okay? But his point is that there's restitution needs to be made, right? There needs to be an effort there. And God's saying my people need to be different. This doesn't mean that God expects that we would be perfect. If he did, there wouldn't be all these laws about what happens when you commit a crime. What he's saying to us and to them is that we need to own it when we make a mistake. Quit pretending like we didn't do it or skating around it, but we own it. We confess. We make a a confession for our sin and say, man, I have wronged you and I want to do what I can do to make you whole, to make your life better than it was before I wronged you. God wants us to see the people around us beyond their circumstances, past their status, right? He wants us to be compassionate, that our love for them would be gracious, a gift, undeserved, and he wants us to care about justice because he cares about justice. God also gives people laws about their worship. Look with me, chapter 20, starting in verse 22. This is informing the way that we love God. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. And in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, he says this, I will come to you and I will bless you. So the first thing that God says to his people is basically an explanation of the first three commandments, right? He basically says that you should worship me and me alone. He says, you have seen for yourself that I've talked with you from heaven. Who talks from heaven? God. Easiest question you'll be asked today and you failed, okay? (laughs) Um, 
God talks from heaven. He says, you've seen for yourself that I've talked with you from heaven, which means I'm God, which means don't worship anything or anyone else. He says, don't make them out of gold or silver because it doesn't matter how shiny they are. They don't deserve your worship. I and I alone deserve your worship. That's what he's saying. We worship the one true God. Basically, this is a a warning against idolatry. And we've said this a lot, but an idol is anything in your life, anyone in your life that you think gives you a sense of value or worth that you think makes you matter in your life. Anything, anyone other than God that makes you feel like you matter. And it can be anything. It can be your job or your house or your hobby or your kids or your spouse or even the kids that you wish you had or the spouse that you wish you had, anything that you think gives you a sense of worth other than God in the world. And I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this today because we've talked about it a lot and we're gonna actually come back to it uh, later in the series. But I do wanna say this, that God starts and ends and infuses all of his law with this prohibition of worshiping other gods, this warning against idolatry. He's serious about it. Chapter 22, verse 20 He says this, whoever sacrifices to any God, any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. And so I'm not trying to scare you at all, but the point I'm making is that the idolatry that lives in your heart, in my heart, it's no small thing. That God cares about it, right? And and we have been having this conversation since at least March 14th. On March 14th, I preached a sermon about branch idols and root idols. We've been having this conversation for months now. And so I just wanna ask you, has your life changed at all? Since we've been having this conversation and since you've been sitting and submitting yourself under the authority of the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit that he's been pressing on the idols, the places, the things, the people in your life that you derive a sense of value and worth from, as we've been having this conversation week after week essentially for months, has the needle moved at all in your life? Because if it has, praise God. No matter how small, if you can say today that I trust and believe in Jesus more today than I did back then, that is a gift from God given to you by the Holy Spirit. Praise God if the needles move, but if it hasn't moved, what are you doing? Because I can't tell you how many people I've sat with who said, man, if I only knew then what I know now, I would live my life completely different. I'd go all in on Jesus. And the thing is, I think we do know now. We just want our sin, we like it. We want Jesus and we want the things of the world too, but God, over and over and over again, he says it doesn't work that way. You worship me and you worship me alone. Here's the next one. We worship on Sunday, but not just on Sunday. Let me explain. Chapter 23, starting in verse 12. He says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest, which is super applicable for us. Uh, And the son of your servant woman, the alien, may be refreshed. He says this, pay attention to everything that I've said. You make no mention. Don't even mention the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. God is serious about idolatry. Verse 14, three times in the year, he says this, you shall keep a feast to me. And he lists out these feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, of first fruits, and the Feast of Harvest of Ingathering. So the beginning of harvest season, the end of harvest season. And so what we just read are these laws about the Sabbath and three festivals that they were supposed to have every year. And the point here is that God wants his people to have a rhythm of worship in their life. A rhythm of worship in their life. And again, these laws aren't arbitrary. God's not saying, hey, yeah, but how about one day a week, take it off? No, these reflect 
the things that God loves, right? And so the point was that these rhythm of worship would be a reminder to them of who God is and what he's done, and it would tell a story to the people around them, point them to the greatness of who God is and what he's doing in the world. So God says this, keep the Sabbath. Six days you work, and on the seventh day you rest because the rhythm of working hard for six days and then taking one off mirrors what God did when he speaks creation into existence, right? And what God is saying is, I want you to have this weekly reminder Keep the Sabbath, it's not arbitrary, it's a weekly reminder that it's not your job to spend every available minute of your life trying to control the outcome of your life. I want you to work hard for six days and take a day off to rest. It's a reminder that it's not your job because you have a God who can do that better than you. It's not your job to be God because God's got that under control. So six days, work hard and then take one to rest. The point of the Sabbath is to remind you that you don't have to be God. And how good is God that he would say, this is the way that life works best. I want you to take a day where you aren't consumed, a whole day, where you're not consumed with all the things that you have to do and you just be. How good is God? He says, it isn't up to you to do enough, to be enough, to prove yourself to the people around you. It's not enough to you to, to meet your benchmarks and all your metrics. It's not an up to you to do all that. Six days work hard, work on all that. But take a day and rest and remember, I'm God and you're not, and I can be trusted. The rhythm of our worship tells a story to the people around us and it reminds us something true about God. It's an invitation for them, hey, this is the way that life works best. So God says, keep the Sabbath, which means we worship on Sunday, right? But we don't just worship on Sunday because verses 14 to 16 gave us all these rules and laws about festivals, I know? And, and I'm not talking about the fair coming to town, okay? We don't keep the festivals, but festivals for Israel would, would be these week-long, sometimes celebrations for them to remember who God was and what he'd done. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what's that about? It's about, remember what I did in Egypt? Remember how when I brought you out? Remember how I provided for you every single day? This is a, a week-long party that reminds you that I will provide for you every day of your life, right? God brings this in. He's saying it's not just about worshiping once a week, it's about all of your life being structured with God at the center. That's what this is talking about. We worship on Sunday, but not just on Sunday. And, and do we not need to hear this? I know that you know that we should structure all of our life with God at the center. I know you, you know that. I also know that it's very easy to compartmentalize our lives, isn't it? Even those of us who in the room say, man, I wanna be faithful to follow Jesus, you wake up and you go, I'm gonna have my quiet time and then I'm gonna go in my time. I'm gonna do what I gotta do, right? I, I got some time for God on Sunday, time for God in the morning, time for God here and there, but other than that, this is my time. We compartmentalize our life, right? But 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God, which means that our lives should be structured with God at the center because it's all worship. We don't just worship when you read your Bible and have quiet time. You don't just worship on Sunday morning. You worship when you work. You worship when you rest. You worship in little things and big things. You even worship when you sleep. Every single night, when you close your eyes and lay down in your bed, you are entrusting your life to the one who never sleeps, to the God who will sustain you until you wake up. It's all worship, all of it. We worship the one true God. We worship on Sundays, but not just on Sundays. And then here's the last one. After Moses reads the law to the people of Israel, they respond this way. Exodus 24, verse three, will be on the screen. Moses came and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. 
all the rules and all the people answer with one voice and they said this, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're gonna do it all. And you gotta love that confidence, right? You have to, you gotta love that, right? And maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've had this encounter with God, man, where just you come face to face with God's grace and his love and his forgiveness for you. And what do you say? You say, man, I'm never doing that again. I'm never going back to that life of sin. You, you have all this confidence, which again, it's not a bad thing, it's good. You say, I'm, I'm gonna follow Jesus. And this is where I think they were, right? They're quite literally almost on the mountain. They're at the base, Moses is up there. They're having this mountaintop experience with God. They get this beautiful picture for how life works best and they say, we're gonna do it all. But they don't. God gives him this vision of how life works best. He says, I want you to love me with everything you got, me and me alone. And they, they say, we'll do it all. But they don't. And then he says, I want you to love people. I want you to be compassionate to them, see them beyond their circumstances, extend grace to people, and pursue justice on behalf of the most vulnerable. And they say, we'll do it all. But they don't. And this is why God says in chapter 20, which we read a bit ago in verse 24, he says, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And, and this is the third thing that shapes our worship is that our worship requires a sacrifice. The worship of the one true God requires a sacrifice. Right at the beginning of these laws, God says, I want you to make an altar. And he says this because what is required for a sinful people to come and approach a holy God is blood must be shed. What's required for a sinful people to approach a holy God is that there must be a sacrifice. They needed an altar and make sacrifices because the law that was written down for them on the stone tablets wasn't good enough. It couldn't outdo the law of sin that was written on their hearts. They needed something else. They said, we will do it all, but they didn't. And so they needed a sacrifice and so do we. So do you and I. Only our sacrifice isn't these ox, again, I mean, ox, sheep, right? And how good is God that he says, hey, listen, an ox or a sheep and I'll come to you. Make sacrifice and I will be there. I will bless you. But the book of Hebrews says that we have a better sacrifice. We have one so good that the altar is closed forever. Not a sheep, not an oxen. Hebrews 10.10 says we have been sanctified, which means made righteous, completely seen as fulfilling all the requirements of the law. You have been sanctified, how? Through the offering, the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We sing no guilt in life, no fear in death, and, and in reality we're going, how could that be true? This is how because there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because he has the sac been the sacrifice for us, right? We're brought near to God forever. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God did what the law couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he sent him for sin to be condemned by sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Paul says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. For you. Let me bring this out of the clouds for us and just bring it kind of down. This means that if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, it means that he sees people beyond their status and their circumstances. It means that he sees you. 
And there's a story in Luke chapter eight of this woman who had been sick for over a decade. Just chronic pain for over 10 years of her life and she's at the end of her rope. She's tried everything she can do. The Bible says she's spent every dime she has trying to be healed. She's, and, and again, no one wants to help her because who wants to help a poor widow? Who cares? Jesus does. So you get the story in Luke chapter eight where she's at the end of her rope. She doesn't know what to do. There's these mobs of people, crowds of people following after Jesus. And she says, if I could just get close to him. Like, just get close to him. I think deep inside of her, she just knows that he'll see me. And she gets close enough to do what? She just touches his coat and Jesus stops. And the Bible says that he felt power go out from him. He turns, he sees her. He makes his disciples look at her. He stands her up. He sees her, lifts her face. And he says, woman, your face has made you well. Your faith, Jesus sees her beyond her status and her circumstances. In Luke 15, there's a story about a tax collector, which is a man who would be hated amongst all of his neighbors, absolutely despised as a traitor, as a thief. You steal from us, right? We want nothing to do with you. You are the lowest of the low. And it says that this man, um, he's interested in Jesus. And so he just takes a shot Right, I'm just gonna, I just wanna be near him so much. I don't care what they're gonna say. I just wanna be near him. And so he goes to be near Jesus and this religious man shows up. This guy who thinks he's better than this other guy because he's not a tax collector. He shows up, he says, Jesus, do you know who this is? This man is a tax collector. He does not deserve to be here. And this guy is filled with shame, I assume. Read between the lines a bit. He's filled with shame. He stands up, grabs his stuff. He's about to leave with his head hung low. And Jesus stops him and he sees him and he tells three stories about how God compassionately pursues the lost. The parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the parable of the prodigal son. And the point of each of those stories is that God the Father is like that father that when one is lost, even though he's severed relationship, Jesus is watching, he's waiting for you to return. And when he does, there's a party in heaven. We kill the fattened calf, take the best robe, take the best ring, take the shoes from my feet. Because what's he say? My son who was lost is found. God is gracious. He loves those of us who don't deserve it. All of us don't deserve it. He sees us beyond our circumstances. And Jesus is committed to justice so committed to justice that he gives his own life. Romans three teaches that God is the just and the justifier of those who sin against him. And the only way that's true is that Jesus inserts his life in that gap so that God can still be just and punish sin and yet be the justifier of those who are punished, right? Jesus' body is punished for our sin. This means that, that Jesus in his death he pays, takes the punishment that we deserve for our sin, but also in his life, he repays to God the restitution that God deserves. He makes us better than brand new. He brings us whole. God sees people. He sees you beyond your status and your circumstance. He is just and the justifier of those who sin. How? Because we put our faith in Jesus. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. So how do we respond as followers of Jesus, he's the fulfillment of the law and he's given us a mission that we are his representatives in the world. If it were up to me, that's a bad plan, right? But that's God's plan, to unleash people who are loved by God, compelled by that love to love the people around them and point them, 
hey, God loves you too. We are given a mission in the spaces and places of our lives, right? Because our lives should look different. And Jesus sees us beyond our circumstances and he loves us and we're compelled by his grace to respond, to love him with our heart, all our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbor as herself. Let me pray for us and then we will respond in worship. If you would stand with me. Father, we thank you that even in three chapters on obscure Old Testament law, you meet us in the word. Thank you, God, that you speak to us through the pages of scripture. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room, God, I pray and ask that you would encourage them in this moment with the good news of the gospel, that they are loved by you despite the fact that they do not deserve it. Would you give them courage for the mission that you've called them to do and, and remind us, God, that it isn't up to us to be perfect. Jesus was perfect on our behalf, but help us to be faithful men and women, that we would worship you with everything we got. We would love the people around us. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. Amen.